So I am excited to start a new book. We've had 48 weeks in Luke. Took a little break for Haggai last year. Now we're going to take another little break after 48 weeks uh, there and go into 1 Timothy. So 1 Timothy starts off the first of three books called the Pastoral Epistles. Uh, these are all written by Paul, and these three books talk about how the church should be run and managed, about order in the church. Uh, to give you an overview of what's to come the next 13 weeks, got a slide up here. Uh, it's very practical. This is a very practical book. So we're going to see in chapter 1 how to combat false teachers and false teaching. Number 2, public worship, including women's roles in the church. Number 3, church leadership and the offices of elders and deacons, which I'll get, I'll get into more about that. And one of the reasons why we're going into this book right now is we will be installing our first uh, elder, other than me, uh, or pastor, elder, shepherd, uh, all similar words, the same title. We'll talk about that more to come. And then our first two deacons. So excited about that. And then number four, uh, moral instruction and godliness in chapter four. Chapter five, social responsibilities of the church. And finally, chapter, or chapter six, we'll talk about how to manage material blessings. So I would encourage you all to read ahead, read it multiple times. This is a very deep book. Um, you know, it's not a narrative. It's, it's just straight theology. So this will be a, uh, it's a very deep book. And all of us come from different experiences, different church experiences. Uh, you know, we, all have, we have different maybe denominations we've come from, uh, different things, different backgrounds. And we all have an idea of how we think the church should run. But there's only one person that we should care how, uh, how the church should be run, and that's not me. It's God. It's His Word. This is how we run the church according to God's Word. So as we go through this great book, I pray that we're challenged by God's Word as we see the importance of, of ordering our church fellowship around the Word of God and not man's ideas. So let us pray and get started. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your Word. As we go through these first 11 verses of this great book of 1 Timothy, may you open up our hearts and minds to hear your Word, not my words. May it be your Word that is spoken today. Uh, may you illuminate it by the power of your Holy Spirit. May you help us to go into our, our minds and then into our hearts and change our actions. Uh, God, may we be changed from the inside out. God, help us to have uh, just a, a sharp mind this morning. I know it's a dreary morning. Sometimes we can get sleepy on days like this. But may you give us just an extra helping of energy in order to grow and learn your word. We love you, praise you, and thank you. And amen. So our first aspect of church order involves maintaining sound doctrine in the church. So today we're going to see two ways that we are to hold fast to sound doctrine. The first is we are commanded to hold fast to sound doctrine. We are commanded to hold fast to sound doctrine. I'm going to start in verse 1 of 1 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. There is a lot in that first verse already. Um, a lot of times we just kind of read these greetings and just read over them and we don't really grasp what exactly we're seeing here. Well, obviously, every, virtually every commentary agrees, especially conservative commentaries, agree that Paul wrote this letter, as long with all the pastoral epistles. And Paul drops this big A word after his name. He is an apostle of Christ Jesus. So he is a big A apostle. We've talked about this a few times in the past. And so I'm just going to go through this really quickly. Big A apostles were chosen by God himself, defined by the ability to perform authenticating signs and miracles, witnesses, eyewitnesses of the bodily form of Jesus while he walked on earth, as well as they had been, in, in tr been with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry on earth and witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Paul's the only exception to this, even though he was kind of on earth at that time. He may have heard or saw Jesus as a young, a young boy, but he was chosen himself as the special apostle to the Gentiles we see in Acts chapter 9. 
Uh, he calls himself the least of the apostles, even though he wrote a lot of the Bible. Uh, but, and they were also, they were and will be the foundation of the church in Revelation 21.14 and Ephesians 2.10. So obviously, we don't have this big A apostle anymore, but we still have little A apostles. We are all sent out ones commissioned to preach the gospel. So the actual literal word of the word apostle is sent out, and we are sent out to perform or to preach the great commission, to preach the gospel. Uh, but the big A apostles have ceased to exist. Then moving on, he says in verse 1, he, he writes according to the command of Christ our Savior, of God our Savior. Uh, that, that's, a, that's a pretty strong word. He wants you to know that this is not his idea. That, that these are not his words that he just thought up and penned this letter. This is the in, inerrant word. Now we know all 66 books of the Bible are inerrant. We know that all of uh, Paul's other letters are inerrant. But this is the only time in any of his letters that he expressly says he's writing according to the command of God. How amazing is that? He, he obviously refers to himself as an apostle in their letters, but this is the only time he talks about the command of God. He also reminds us that our hope is found where? In Christ Jesus. Nowhere else. Our hope is found in Christ Jesus. Uh, Charles Ellicott, an old uh, 1800s theologian, once beautifully said this, Jesus is not merely the object of our hope, or the author of it, but its very substance and foundation. As the old hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less. Yeah, then Jesus, blood, and righteous. Great job. We're awake. That's good. We're still, still with me. That's good. All right, so now we're going to move on to verse 2. And, and, and the last part of this greeting, he says, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. May, may, one may wonder why Timothy is the name of two books of the Bible. Where did this guy come from? Who is Timothy? So Paul informs us here that he is his, his adopted spiritual child, his adopted spiritual son. Uh, Timothy's first mentioned in Acts chapter 16, verse 1, where he's called a disciple. We don't know how he came to Christ. We, we're not told his salvation story, but we see him as a, as a traveling companion for the apostle Paul, throughout Paul's ministry. And we see Paul call him his child in the faith here in verse 2, and then in 1 Corinthians 4.17, he calls him his beloved and faithful child. Although his biological father was a Greek, we see that, he had a, a Christian, well, a Jewish that became Christian, mother and grandmother, uh, grandmother Lois and mother Eunice, who were both believers. And we know they're of Jewish lineage because she's called a Jewish believer. The mom is called a Jewish believer in Acts 16.1. And it was certainly his mother Eunice who named him. As we know, his name means one who honors God. What a prophetic word of this young man who would certainly live up to that name. He was serious about his walk with Christ. And we, even, we see him in Acts 16. He's already a leader of the church in that area, uh, in his hometown of Lystra and nearby Iconium. Uh, so Paul writes this letter to Timothy, but ultimately it's to the church of Ephesus, and even more ultimately it's to us today. This, this letter would go to the churches that would follow Christ afterwards. And then Paul gives these three blessings, and he does this a lot at the beginning of his, of his letters, and he gives us three different statements here. He, he says grace. Well, great. What is grace? Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Grace is salvation. It's given to us without us having any merit. We deserve death. He gives us salvation, which brings us to mercy, which is God not giving us what we do deserve. We deserve hell, and yet he's offered us the free gift of eternal life. How amazing is that? And then finally, peace. Peace is what we experience when we are right with God. 
It is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We see in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. It's not just a feeling. Yes, we can feel peaceful, but it's a lot deeper than a feeling. It, it is, a, is where we, it's inner tranquility with God. It's being right with God, righteous, not depending on our own circumstances, our own worth, how good we've done that day, but it's depending on the love of God and the salvation of God. So, so far, we've seen that we are commanded to hold fast to sound doctrine. The words that we're going to be reading, the words we've already read, are the very words of God. We know that every week, but we have been told out of shadow of a doubt by Paul, he's writing by the command of God. Our correct beliefs must be founded upon his word and his word alone. Over the next few verses, we're going to see how Paul tells us to combat those who are false teachers, which brings us to the next point. We are charged to hold fast to sound doctrine. We are charged hold fast to sound doctrine by combating liars. This is the first point, uh, first sub-point of the second point. I know this is confusing. We don't have three points. We have two with two sub-points. Really throwing you off today. Uh, so by combating liars. So let's go ahead and get into verse three. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may, char- may, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. After Paul's informative introduction, he gets right into the meat of the letter. Uh, verses 3 through 11 are going to directly combat false teaching. And this word charged here uh, is actually parangero, which is a military word. It means to be ordered. He is, he is ordering Timothy to deal with false teaching. And he orders us to deal with false teaching as well. He encourages Timothy to remain in Ephesus and rebuke these different doctrines. One of the most important high callings of leaders in the church, and frankly I would say even church members as well, is to protect the church from false teaching. This is a critical task that is being neglected among most churches today. It's clear that the church in Ephesus was being afflicted by false teaching. If you read the book of Ephesus, you see some of those false teachings that were creeping in. And he says that there are, quote, certain persons. He uses this phrase three different times. Certain persons who were teaching false doctrine. He'll go through many of these doctrines in later verses. However, unfortunately for this church, this, quote, certain persons were likely elders in the church. They were likely leaders. And Paul ends up, because the congregation was having a hard time getting rid of these false teachers, Paul ends up excommunicating two of these men himself, as we see later in the same chapter, 1 Timothy 1, 19 through 20. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's some strong words right there, aren't they? These men were divisive, and their teachings start to be mentioned in verse 4. So let's read verse 4 and start to see where they were going. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God, that is by faith. So false teachings in the church and Ephesus were saying there's myths, there's genealogies, speculations, and disorder. So Paul's first teaching he addresses is talking about those who are divisive over extra-biblical and, frankly, unbiblical things. Uh, they're, they're becoming divisive, they're creating disorder over things that don't matter, things that are, frankly, a lot of times unbiblical and not even true. And there were those in the church that had an agenda in the church of Ephesus. It had been a myth they were propagating. They had their ideas and they were going to propagate them. And oftentimes it may have been uh, an argument over genealogy. So the genealogy of the Old Testament, a lot of first-century Jews uh, who, or, who, were, who converted to Christianity were starting to make up ideas about some of these Old Testament genealogies and myth, uh, mythologize uh, some of these people and make up stories. A lot of the uh, Gnostic Gospels we'll see kind of have done that with different people. The Gospel of Thomas and some of these different false Gospels would, would, would add to the Word of God and make up stories about these people from the Bible, biblical times. 
They may have brought in a, a hobby horse, something that was unbiblical, but something that they had, a legalistic idea that they had. And Paul warns that these promote speculations rather than stewardship. Well, this word stewardship means good order. So they were not, having, they were not promoting good order in the church. They were not promoting unity, but they were promoting their own ideas that they added to the Word of God. They, they were being divisive over things not worth dividing over. We must fight against those who highlight lesser things at the expense of the greater things, which is the Bible, the Word of God which is greater than any other thing. Then I want us to focus on this word speculation as well. Uh, I think it's become a huge issue in our modern church. Instead of standing firm on the Word of God, people like to speculate their own ideas. They, they like to bring their own experiences, their own ideas to the, to the Bible and figure out how they can twist the Bible to fit their ideas. Instead of the opposite, how we conform our lives and our experiences to the Word of God, which does not change. We are fallible. Our experiences are fallible. Our minds are fallible. Sadly, Lauren and I saw this, this speculative approach to Christianity a, a couple of years ago, probably a few years ago now. We were at a Christian coffee shop and saw this Bible study going on beside of us, and we were super pumped. We don't always see Bible studies, and we're really excited about this Bible study that's going on in a Christian coffee shop. Wow, that's amazing. So we asked them what church they're a part of, and they tell us that they're part of this, well, they didn't say this, but we knew, a, a very liberal-leaning denomination. And all of a sudden, that was a red flag, and I'm like, well, they're here having a Bible study, though, so that's great. Maybe they haven't bought in to the liberal theology that's infecting this denomination. Unfortunately, as we sat there, we couldn't help but hear, overhear some of the study as they were right beside of us. And we're trying to have this conversation, and time after time, the study leader, who is the pastor of the church, is sitting there, and he asks the following two questions about everything. And these are the two questions he asked. How do you feel about that? Or what do you think about that? Sadly, they did not cover hardly any scripture. And, and this conversation morphed into this, a series of rants that were about as biblical as a talk show on primetime television about man's opinions and humanism and, a, and, and a, you know, just that ruled the day instead of the actual Bible. And my friends, th this might sound offensive. You've maybe heard me say this in the past. And so if you're still here, I guess you're not offended by it. But I really don't care what you feel or what you think about something when it comes to the Bible. Now, I don't care about what you feel as a person. I care about what you think as a person. But when you have a, a feeling or opinion that, is, that disrespects the Word of God and disagrees with it, I, I don't care. And I don't care what I feel or I think about something. There's verses I read, and I'm like, I wish that wasn't like that. I, I think it'd be a lot easier if it was like this, right? We, we read the Bible, and it'd be a lot easier if it was our way, right, for us, because we naturally bend that way. But what we feel, what we think doesn't matter. When we stand in front of the judgment seat of Christ, it's not going to be what Jonathan thought, right? It's not going to be what you thought. It's going to be the God judging you by his word, which is inerrant and perfect. We should only care about what he thinks, not about what our mom thinks, our dad thinks, our brother, our sister. Hopefully our mom and dad are teaching us the word of God and they're standing on that. But, but ultimately, I know when, I, when we disciplined our kids growing up and we continue to, we try not to take our own authority. We do have authority as parents, but our authority will one day run out. Our kids will be out of our home and they will be adults, and one day, what mom and dad think, we won't have the control. We won't be able to take away this, or, or ground them, or when they were younger, you know, other things that we might have done that were disciplined, uh, spankings, things like that, right? I know that's probably non-kosher to talk about, but, you know, we, we, won't, we won't have that authority and that power in our children's lives, but God will always be their authority, and so when, when we discipline them, we want to bring up scriptures. We want to bring up verses and say, this is why this is wrong, because this is what God's word says. Getting back to the church of Ephesus, when, when we start to, to creep into feelings and mysticism like they were then, we quickly can come into error. The, the Gnostics of the first century were certainly teaching that they had a special 
revelation from God that was not here. It was something extra that they were given that no one else was. First John hits this extremely hard, uh, that the Gnostic, the Gnostic uh, movement, the Gnostic heresy that was going on there. And this heresy was likely in, infecting the church in Ephesus where Timothy was as well. And I, I'm going to say this, beware of anyone claiming to have biblical knowledge that's not available to all of you. If I ever get up here and I say, I have a revelation that you don't know about, it's not in the Bible, it's something extra, but God has spoken to me personally, and I bring a teaching, you need to kick me out. You need to vote me out of my position, because I am a heretic. If there is anything you go to, if you go to any place, any other church, any place, and a pastor gets up there, or someone stands up and says, I have something to say to you that is revelation from God, that is the, that is the word, this is the word of God, this is what God has said, and it's contrary to this, it's extra to this, it's not the Word of God. That, like God is done speaking to us with His Word. Six, six books, He speaks through us to the Holy Spirit, absolutely. He continues to guide us and direct us. But if a pastor ever stands up and says, I have a new teaching, there's a 99.99% chance it's a heresy, that it, that it is a false teaching. And there are so many churches with pastors that are standing up and saying, I have something you don't have, and so you need me to be able to teach you everything. No, my job is to preach the Word of God that you already have in your hands so that you can listen to everything I say, and you can weigh it. You can critically think about it, and hopefully you can trust me. Hopefully I'm not saying things that are wrong, and if I do, please come and talk to me. I want to repent about that publicly. But you should be able to fact-check everything that I say by the Word of God. There are cross-references, and I include them in my sermon so that you can look back and say, oh yeah, that is in here. Oh yeah, that is what the Scripture says. There may be a differential, uh, difference in opinion of interpretation among different churches and, and, and godly men and women, but, you should, but I should have something to back up what I say. And be careful about those who stand up and say that they can teach you something that you can't find out for yourself in the Word of God. That is a very dangerous, slippery slope to go down. Finally, moving on to, to verse 5 here. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And man, I love that this verse comes right after Paul just blasting the false teachers. He's like, remember love. Remember love. Uh, this is a pivotal teaching for church leaders and believers alike. We are to combat heresy and false teaching. We are to stand firm on the word of God, but we're to do it and love. We're to do it lovingly. We're to do it out of love for God and for others. Uh, we want to protect the church, absolutely. God is first, but our focus is not on harming false teachers or people that are deceived. That is not what we want. We don't want to harm people, although we should address them directly, confidently by the Word of God, and strongly, and not approach with kid gloves. Our hope should be that they repent and change their sinful ways. And these, this love must come through three distinct and practical channels. And the first one is love from a pure heart. Love from a pure heart. As Chaplain Hughes assert, the heart stands for the totality of man's moral affections. A pure heart is only possible by one who has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. As the psalmist infers, only God can create in us a clean heart. Psalm 51.10. The second channel that love must flow in is love from a good conscience. The conscience is the ability to distinguish between right and wrong. We are all born with a conscience, yet that conscience can be seared, as we see in 1 Timothy 4.2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. All of us are born with this conscience. We know what's right or wrong, but we can suppress it, and we see people do it every day. 
We who are born again believers, though, are blessed with the Holy Spirit who continues to sanctify our conscience and helps it to become more and more aligned with the Word of God through the Word of God, through His work in our lives so that we can become more holy and righteous. And finally, number three, love from a sincere faith. Love from a sincere faith. Now, interestingly, faith and love are paired together in every single instance in the pastoral epistles, except for 2 Timothy 1.7. Every single time. Faith and love, always together. Because here's the thing, we cannot truly love, agape love, unless we have what? Faith. Unless we've been saved. Unless we have the Holy Spirit in us, because we cannot love well. I say it all the time. That's why you don't want to be unequally yoked. If, you, if you're married to an unbeliever, they can't love you like you can love them because they don't have the Holy Spirit inside of them. And that is the importance of finding a spouse, young people, find a spouse who loves Jesus, who is a true born-again believer, not just somebody that says they're a Christian. Ask somebody you love to, to ask them questions. Maybe your mom and dad, maybe somebody else. Have somebody that's not stricken by their handsomeness or their beauty and to ask them legit, legitimate questions about whether they really are a believer. A lot of people claim to be Christians but aren't. A sincere faith is a true faith. It's not pretense or hypocrisy like many have. It is a faith with integrity. Finally, moving on to 6 and 7 here. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul uses this phrase again, certain persons. He loves this phrase, certain persons. To, to describe false teachers. And he says they've swerved. I love that. You know, they, they've, they were going one way and they've just swerved completely 180 and they're going the complete opposite direction from sound doctrine, from, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from sincere faith. Now they are in vain discussion. And this word vain means empty, fruitless, worthless, completely useless. They, they have pridefully put themselves into a teaching role that they are entirely not qualified for. I oftentimes joke with my children with the following statement. What they lack in skill, they make up for with confidence. Don't you know people like that? What they lack in skill, they make up for with confidence. They just keep talking and they keep, okay, I can do this, I can do this, but they have no idea what they're doing. And that is what these false teachers had done. They didn't have a good knowledge of the Word of God. They did not even have the Holy Spirit, most likely. They probably weren't even believers. And what did they do? They, they got up and they spoke confidently about things that they knew nothing about. And sadly, we see this a lot today with the internet, YouTube, podcasts. How many people are out there that are self-proclaimed experts in fields without any true substantial knowledge? Be careful what you listen to. There is so much garbage out there that can take you the wrong way. They speak with great confidence, and oftentimes the most charismatic of them are the ones that will deceive you the quickest. Judge everything by the Word of God. You must be aware of such people. Finally, we see that we are charged to hold fast to sound doctrine by combating lawlessness, by combating lawlessness. This brings us to verse 8. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul's about to give a rapid-fire list of sins uh, that are affecting the church of Ephesus. It is clear that we see that the law is good. We are no longer under uh, the ceremonial and sacrificial law because Jesus fulfilled that law. It's been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But the moral law of God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Lord does not change. It seems likely that Paul is addressing a false charge that was coming at him from these certain persons. And, and this false charge is most likely antinomianism, really long word. Uh, actually, 
It just means anti-law. That's an easy way to put this. Uh, so they were accusing Paul of being an antinomian, which means that Christians are released by grace to do whatever they want to do. That, the third, that oh, because of grace, they, can, they don't have to observe the moral law either. Now we know that's a false teaching. This is a heretical doctrine. They're, they're accusing Paul uh, of preaching grace. You're saved by grace, not by works. Oh, you're antinomian. So you don't actually have to follow the law. No, you're saved by grace through faith. But, but if you are truly saved, you will do good works because of your love for God. And if, if you aren't doing good works, it's a good sign you're not saved because those who are truly saved understand the penalty that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins and follow him through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul fought hard against the Judaizers who tried to add to the word of God to, to be legalistic. Uh, also to the pagans that tried to conform Christianity to their own ideas as well. And sometimes we see that the greatest threat to the gospel is not always liberalism. Sometimes it is legalism as well. In answering this attack, Paul goes through this list of vast list of moral laws that need to be addressed. Interestingly, it appears that those accusing Paul of being too much about grace are guilty of breaking God's moral law time and time again. It is interesting that oftentimes the sins someone accuses you of or the sins that someone accuses others of is often the one they're, they're doing themselves. We see this oftentimes in life. That, that the people that are most outspoken, look at the media, how often do they, are they outspoken about this affair that just happened and then you find out the person that just did that story just had an affair. Uh, you, you see a lot of times the people that are the most vocal about sin are the ones that are doing it themselves. Now we come to this rapid fire group of sins in 1 Timothy 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's quite the list, isn't it? And we're going to go through that, so pray for me. Um, so a a as we see, the, the, the God's moral law is not to be applied mystically, like the Gnostics did. Oh, we'll pick and choose what we're going to do, how we're feeling, However God reveals things to you, then you can just follow that. Follow your own way. Don't follow the Bible. And so it ends with all things contrary to sound doctrine. We're going to see that. Instead of sound doctrine, these false teachers propagated a strange or a different doctrine. And those who promote false doctrines are fall into grievous sins, such as the following. Number one, lawless and disobedient. Uh, this describes those who are, are rebellious and refuse to obey the word of God and the law of God. They are insubordinate and, and, and obstinate. Number two, ungodly and sinners. Now, these two terms are often used of those who reject God and live how they want to live. But praise be to God, he saves people like this. We were those people, ungodly and sinners. We see in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, I love that term, at the right time. He, it, God's timing is always right. It's always perfect. He is sovereign. He is in control. It says that Christ died for who? The ungodly. If you're saved, you are ungodly. If you, if, you, if you weren't ungodly, you can't be saved. You don't need saved if you're not ungodly. If you're not lawless, but for us who are saved, we should know we were ungodly. We were lawless, and God died for us. If you've not ever seen yourself as ungodly or lawless, you're not saved. And I pray today you fall on your knees and you realize, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips or a woman of unclean lips. Like Isaiah said, we are lawless and sinners. We are ungodly. But, but God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. 
and raised three days later. So that now he's at the right hand of the Father, willing to save our souls. If you haven't done that, I'd love to see you do that today. Number three, unholy and profane. Here is the third pair of central attributes, kind of, of sinful attributes uh, that describe false teachers and those who are like them. These two words are really closely linked. And they refer to things or actions that are inappropriate to the worship of God. They are unholy. After giving these first three pairs of, of, pairs of uh, broad descriptors, Paul zooms in on some specific sins that arise out of these broad categories. I, I want you to take one cool note here. If you look at this section of Scripture, you're going to see a parallel. You're going to see this parallel that goes all the way through into the book of Exodus. Remember the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. If you, if you would parallel Exodus 20, 12 through 16, you're going to see commandments 5 through 9 are all addressed in sequential order. Uh, you see Paul bring out the, what's called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. And so join me as we kind of go through these. The first here is those who strike their fathers and mothers. Commandment number 5, Exodus 20, 12. Uh, this phrase likely refers uh, to those who figuratively strike their parents with their words by dishonoring, but also those who might strike and kill their parents. The Bible is clear. The parenthood is to be revered. A murder of a parent was un, is unthinkable when you think of the scriptural understanding of honoring your father and mother. Uh, listen to Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and, and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the fifth commandment, but is the first commandment with a promise, as we see in Ephesians 6, 2. Ephesians 6, 1 is my favorite verse in the Bible. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's a good one. You should put that in your refrigerator. Um, it, it's, 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 it's a good one. Children, obey your I, I don't know how many times. If I had a dollar for every time I've said that, uh, I'd be a really, really wealthy person. So uh, the, the, the negative of this promise is assumed in the Scripture as well. Those who do not honor their father and mother, and the reason we need to discipline our children, because what their days won't be long. Their days will be cut short. We need to honor our parents. Number five, murderers. We see that one in the commandments, right? Commandment number six, Exodus 20, verse 13. This is crystally clear uh, you know, throughout Scripture. It's, it's, it's explicitly addressed here in Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. I think that one's pretty clear. This is the sixth commandment. Next, Paul moves on to the seventh commandment. And number six, the sexually immoral. This is commandment number seven. Uh, the Greek word that is translated sexually immoral means anything that is outside of the bounds of marriage. Anything, anything, any lust or any sexual act outside of the bounds of marriage, believers are called to be pure and holy and set apart. Listen to Paul preach on the severity of sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. In a world of sin, sensual temptations at every turn, we must fully rely on the Holy Spirit to combat this more than ever today. Number seven, homosexuality. Again, commandment number seven. But we see, why, why do we see this separated? Homosexuality is a form of sexual immorality. Right, so why does Paul split this up? Why is it different here? And it's oftentimes mentioned separately because it's not only a sin against the body like we've just seen. We've seen sexual sin is somewhat set apart because it's a sin against the body itself, but now we have a sin against the created order of God. Genesis chapter 2, God creates what? Male and 
female, right? He, he creates the female to be a helper for the male, and he creates the two to become one flesh. He creates marriage. He creates procreation. They're to be fruitful and multiply. God has created, created order. He has created male and female. And so this is a perversion that's twofold. It's against the body itself, and it's against the created order of God. And the literal Greek word here is men who practice homosexuality. But, but yet we know this, this refers to both, because we look at Romans 1, 26 through 27. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. Do you see the difference here in this sin? And again, all sin is sin. One sin sends you to hell without Jesus Christ. All sin may be forgiven. Sometimes we, we rank sins like unforgivable. No, can't, can't be forgiven. And you know, for the church today, it seems like we like to talk about homosexuality and abortion. Those are the ones because maybe we don't struggle with that. So we kind of put them on this top shelf, and it's like, well, these are... Now, the Bible does teach homosexuality is kind of a dual sin. It's a sin against the created order. It's unnatural. We see that. And it's sexual immorality. Yes, there is a, a big sin here. Uh, but any sin, pride, lust, anger, they'll all send you to hell apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus died for all of us. And so a, as we pray for those who may, str may struggle with homosexuality, I mean, we realize that their, their biggest problem is not that they're gay. Their biggest problem is not that they have same-sex attraction or they're even in a same-sex relationship. Their biggest issue is they need to fall on their knees and humble themselves before Jesus Christ to be saved. Only then can they combat any sin. Just like when we were dead in our sin, we couldn't fight any sin. We were powerless to fight against sin. And so may we focus on the gospel before anything else. Moving on to number eight, enslavers. This is a tough one. Commandment number eight, Exodus 20, verse 15. This literally means man-stealers is actually what this is literally. It refers to human traffickers and kidnappers. <laughs> Look at how God feels about this in Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall what? Be put to death. Wow. Uh, obviously, this is a capital offense worthy of death, and this was something that was clearly ignored in the history of America. I mean, this is a punishable capital offense, and we had slavery? Praise be to God, there were true believers in Jesus Christ who fought hard to abolish slavery in England and also in the United States. Praise be to God. There, there are always false believers. There's always, and people will say, well, the church did this and the church did this. The church has done a, a ton of horrible things because Satan's entered the church I don't know how many times. You look at the Catholic church and a lot of the things that they've done and the false teachings and heresies, you look among many churches even to this day that are propagating a gospel that's false. It's a false gospel. The largest quote-unquote church in America is Joel Osteen's church, which is not a church. They don't preach the gospel. Fifty-some thousand people gather every week to hear humanism, which is Satan's language. So there were true believers that knew the Bible, that, 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 that loved the Lord, that did stand firm. However, today, slavery is still an issue. We may say, oh, okay, we've abolished slavery in the United States. No. Time fails us to speak of the horrible atrocities in our world with human trafficking. That is even going on here. It's going on across the world. We need to pray for those who are suffering under this horrible and modern-day slavery throughout our world. Sometimes we'll turn on the news and we'll see somebody gets arrested for human trafficking and we just keep scrolling. It was in our backyard. 
It, can, it happens in West Virginia. It happens in Kentucky. It happens in Ohio. It's going on all around us. Talk to the police. They, they know this stuff's going on. May we pray. We'll keep our eyes open as well and pray for what's going on around us. Number nine, liars and perjurers. Getting to number nine now. Exodus 20, verse 16. We see another one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. God hates lying. He hates it. He actually refers to it as an abomination, which means something that is profane, hated, and frankly disgusting. That's what God thinks about lying. Listen to Proverbs 12, 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. That word abomination we actually see with the Antichrist we see that he's going to set himself up as the abomination that causes desolation, that he will set himself up to be God. Like, that's how God feels about lying, because lying and bearing false witness, oftentimes people lie about the Bible, they lie about what they've done. That is, a, that is contrary to God's nature. Let's listen to what God is like in Titus 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Believers are to walk in the truth as our Father is in the truth. Actually, one of the terms that we see in John 14, 6, we talk about Jesus as the only way to God, but he is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the truth. God is the truth. To lie is to be opposite of God, is to be of Satan, who is a liar since the beginning. And finally, number 10, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul ends this section with an open-ended phrase because all sin separates from us from God. God hates all form of sin. Before moving on to our last verse, I think it's important to understand our own sinfulness. You know, we hear this list of sins, and a lot of times we, we like to pick up on the ones we don't struggle with. You know, maybe it's murder, or maybe it's homosexuality, maybe it's this, and we, oh yeah, that's good. I'm glad I got some verses to combat that right now. I'm glad I have Romans 1, 24 through 27, so the next conversation I get in with so-and-so, I can be like, hey, the Bible clearly teaches that. And yeah, we, we do need to open up the scriptures. There are liberal people out there that will say the Bible doesn't teach this. And I mean, you just saw that. There's no other way to interpret that scripture other than what it says. But I pray that we don't go through that list and we don't start to be introspective as well. What of those are we struggling with? Uh, what, what of these are we being hit with? Because here's the thing. Until we are humble before God, we can't be used by God to combat false teaching because we're practicing lawlessness ourselves. We're not right with God. So may we humble ourselves so that we can fight against false teaching. Uh, nobody understood this like Paul did. Paul, later on in this chapter, we'll talk about next week in verse 15, he says this, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The apostle Paul calls himself the, the foremost of sinners, the, the guy that's spreading the gospel faster than anyone in the history of the world is calling himself the foremost of sinners. You should see yourself that way. I, I, you need to pray one time and say, God, I am the worst person I know. And some of you are like, I'm not the worst person I know. I know a lot of people worse than me. No, you only know some of their sins. I've said this many times. Osama bin Laden, we know he was a horrible guy. We know he did a lot of atrocities, but you know more of your sins than you know of his. So as far as what you know about yourself, you know the deepest, darkest, horrible things you ever thought, you've ever done. You should be the worst sinner that you know because Christ died to save who? Sinners, not godly people. If you want to be right with God, you've got to know that you are a sinner. You deserve hell. You didn't deserve heaven, but yet he died for you anyway. 
And that helps you to love God more because you see that God loves the foremost of sinners. Uh, uh, all of the horrible thoughts that you've had, that I've had, all of the things we've done that we shouldn't, that we shouldn't have done and things we should have done that we, we didn't, only then can we truly understand what it is to be saved. Finally, moving on to the last verse, which is going to go right into the gospel. In accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Anything that opposes or disagrees with the gospel is false teaching and needs to be rebuked and dealt with. Uh, th those pastors that are not pastors that are saying you're good, uh, God, God loves you just the way you are. It's like, yeah, God does, he does save sinners, but he doesn't leave us there. He's going to continue to bring us and conform us in the image of, of God. Uh, those that say you're great, you're perfect, just, just go have self-esteem, it's all false teaching. People love to hear that. Those churches are big. You know, our church would be a lot bigger if I started just patting you on the back and saying, you're amazing, you're going to go do it, and you can do this, and you can do that. And you're, That's a good way to grow a church, but that's also a good way to send people to hell. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we are not good, that Christ is the only one good. No one is good, not even one, Romans 3, right? In Galatians 1, 6 through 9, Paul says this about those who preach a gospel different than the one he said. He said, those who preach a gospel contrary to the ones that, that I preach to you through the power of the Holy Spirit, let them be accursed. He says it twice, let them be accursed. Pretty much, let them go to hell. Like that's, those who preach these false gospels, they are hell-bent. That's where they're heading if they do not repent. We must fight against the false gospels peddled today. We must stand firm on the solid, sound doctrine of the scriptures and the word of God. Let's come to a close. May we remember that we are commanded and charged. We're commanded to hold fast to sound doctrine and to combat those who do not hold fast to sound doctrine. We can only do this by studying the Word of God regularly and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to help us as we move forward. May we be a church that is marked by holiness and by purity. May we lovingly yet firmly stand against all false teaching and any false teachers that may preach contrary to the gospel. As we come to a close, I, I know we've had a lot of meat today. This was a tough sermon. There was a lot of deep theology in this, and so I want us to have just a little time and have Adam just, just play, play, you know, play through, pick through some, 